Welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. My guest this week is a very special guest. He's not just a guest on a show. He's a long-time, dear personal friend of mine. Um, we go out together. We have dinner together. We go to wrestling shows together. He's been to my house. He knows my family. So this is like a big brother to me. I've learned so much from this man, and he's so knowledgeable. He's one of the few that were both successful on the bookmaking side and the betting side. Please welcome my man, Dinky. What's up, Dink? Thanks, Panky. How are you? Pretty good. Yourself? I don't think you've learned all that much from me, but that's very nice that you said so. No, I really have. Good to hear, brother. So, I kind of want to take a a career aspect and start from the beginning. How was life growing up? How was life growing up? Well, we grew up middle class, but my parents were uh, were from the Prohibition era and the, the Depression. And um, we did not act like we had money, but we had some money, but we never had a car. We lived in a third floor walk-up for the first 11 years of my life. I shared a bedroom with my parents for the first 11 years of my life, but uh, they were very frugal. And uh, one of the things I learned from them is I didn't want to be frugal. I wanted to live life because I think you have to live life to its fullest. So Growing up was kind of sheltered. Um, I, I, my best friend was a Spalding rubber ball. I took it wherever I went. I was throwing it against walls and pretending I was playing Major League Baseball games. And I also played sports, you know, going up uh, softball for when I was like 7 to 12. And then I got into basketball. I, I did that till I was 60. And that was my last, uh, and my 60th birthday was my last basketball full court basketball game wow so yeah i know you're a really tall guy um were you one of the taller guys in your in your class growing up or uh yeah i was always in the back back row when we were assigned uh in public school by by height um i wasn't the tallest but i was usually second or third i think gotcha and that's what made you you know love basketball you were able to pick up on it and you enjoyed it it's funny because I loved playing basketball. I don't like watching basketball or betting it, and I like betting hockey, and I never skated. Gotcha. <laughs> no, that's great. So you're growing up, and, and you grew up in, in, in Queens? or Queens. What, what? So yeah. what part of Queens? Uh, I, I was born in Richmond Hill. We moved to South Jamaica, right on the old Jamaica racetrack. Uh, then I moved to... Rego Park, then Forest Hills, then Bayside, and my parents summered in Rockaway Beach, which was also in Queens. So I never left the borough. Gotcha. So you, uh, you know, how how is in that era? Um, we're talking um, 60s, 70s. Um, how is it uh, with respect to the gambling way of life? Was gambling just part of it? Did people bet on everything uh-huh. or? My dad was pretty much the world's smallest better. Um, he would he worked in the general post office in Manhattan, and he obviously had a bookmaker. But he would bet like two or four dollars on horses, and we'd watch the races on, on WOR TV in our living room on our little TV with the antenna and four channels. Channel nine, uh, WOR, channel nine. Channel nine, all with the Rangers and the Knicks gotcha. and the racing shows. Um, yeah, and, and um, I learned a little bit, but I didn't quite get it until I was about 11 when, when things opened up a little bit more. And I remember he brought, he showed me a one of those parlay cards that everybody seems to start out on. And I think he would labor over it for hours and then bet a three-teamer for 5 or $10. And I was, you know, watching a lot of football, so I thought, this will be easy. I'll just pick three teams and I'll add a fourth. I want two tickets. So I said... I want one ticket with four teams and one ticket with three. I'm going to have the same three teams on on the fourth one because I I didn't think they could lose. But, of course, I had no idea what I was doing. And he booked it, and I hit both tickets. Wow. And he wasn't, yeah. I mean, a four-teamer, I I don't want 
three-teamer is, what, eight to one and six to one on a card, and a four-teamer was like 10 to one back then, just total robbery, but I had no idea. I was like 11. But I remember I hit my first card. I think that the only reason I might believe in God is because almost everybody wins on their first bet. So that was my first, and I won. So that and your dad booked it. And my dad booked it because, of course, he couldn't win. So how could I? (laughs) Okay, so great. I mean, he wasn't like here's the money and he'll be bluffed. He was just annoyed. And I said, "You did you put this in?" And he said, "Yeah, I I put it in." Yeah, but the way he said it, I knew he did. Gotcha. So that that first bite of like, wow, this is easy, um, or this is great. I could actually, you know, but you don't. Nobody like nobody ever goes to school or goes to high school, college, thinking, hey, I'm going to gamble for a living. Um, what career aspects? What interested you back then? What did you want to be when you grew up? I never knew what I wanted to be when I when I reached high school. I thought I was going to be a teacher. Um, when I reached college, I thought I was going to be an accountant. I switched majors because there was more money in accounting. And, and in New York at that time, you'd probably have to work in some dangerous schools. And I wasn't, I didn't think I'd be teaching. And I, I'd just be like babysitting. And you don't make that much money anyway doing that. So I, um, I, I switched to accounting, but I didn't like accounting. All my life is a contradictions like the basketball and hockey contradiction. I was really good at math, but I didn't like math. And I wasn't that good at English, but I liked to read. So oh, I didn't know what I'd want to be, but I knew it had to be math because it's the only thing I'm good at. So I got an accounting degree, but by that time I was, by the time I graduated college, I was at the racetrack every night and um, I had a quarter sheet with somebody, so I was making money that way. And I only worked six months after college, and then I decided to give gambling a chance. But I didn't plan on it ever until probably my last year in college when I said, I can't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a terrible life if I'm an accountant. I had a part-time job in an accounting firm, and everybody who was 20 years older than me seemed to be miserable. And then I said, i got to take some kind of shot at not being miserable for the rest of my life. Which is a big risk, and and you've seen you've even seen it up till up till today. Like uh, there's guys that are um, that are into their fifties and sixties that have just done the nine to five thing, and that have that uh, they've um, they've just you know been just just going to work every day and and not really taking that chance to be able to go on their own. So that you know to the, all the credit to you for for taking that step. So this was the last. That, that was my, that was my dad. He subway into um into the city every an hour ride from queens to, to manhattan worked in the general post office took the subway back and both in rush hours so it was really packed and by the time he got home he had time to watch like two television shows and go to sleep and he was always cranky and that's another thing that you know my job the six months i worked i worked in manhattan i took the express bus and it took me an hour to get in and i didn't like you know, I liked the people I was working with. I didn't like the work. And, you know, I just said I have to try something different. And I was doing well at the track back then. Um, it was a little easier because there was a lot, like in gambling, there's a lot of more, you know, squares betting. And you got overpriced horses if you were good at it. And I didn't have much money. So I, I learned the harder, the easier way. I didn't have to lose all my money. I didn't. I just was there trying to figure it out. It was like a puzzle to me, and I was working on solving the puzzle and learning the do's and don'ts. Um, took me a while, but I didn't lose. I didn't go through a bankroll and get discouraged because I didn't have a bankroll. I was parking in Fortune at the Orbach's parking lot and walking around into the Roosevelt Raceway parking lot, and you know, using my college ID and paying a dollar at night. And I might have brought ten dollars with me for a long time. Um, but I love the atmosphere and I love the learning. I also hit my first bet there, a two dollar show bet on Frosty Lad, driven by Carmine Abatello, and I paid two eighty the show. <laughs> I was like, it was easy. <laughs> it was easy. <laughs> so, so at the racetrack, usually a lot of people learn things, uh, like just being around other gamblers and, and 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 you know not just what not to do, but what to do and everything. Were there any mentors or were there any people that took you under their wing, or did you just you know was there a camaraderie there? Um, yeah, I, we had a crew and we had the same, we stood at the same place outside, um, 
right in front of the hamburger stand toward the finish line at Roosevelt, almost at the finish line. And, and yeah, there were characters and, and, uh, a man named Ellie kind of mentored us, um, mentored me especially, except now that I realize that he, he wasn't the greatest better in the world, but he would make hundred dollar bets, which was crazy to me. And he would, that he would pick his favorites, you know, only favorites, pretty much even money shots with good drivers and good post positions. And he was very careful. So I learned to be careful and not bet every race from him. Um, and at that time, there might have been more value on those kind of horses than there are now. Like horses that were paying 480 back then would go off at 3 to 5 now and pay 320. I know this is a sports betting podcast, but we're talking racing. But but he was holding his own. And, you know, I was admiring that. But then I learned to try to find more value, but small and win big. But he was still taught me some principles of the game and, and you know, improved my handicapping a lot. And, uh, Ellie, I, I kind of lost track with him uh, once Roosevelt closed. So okay, so so you so race you know the racetrack. A lot of guys would, would, betting on horses was was big back then. Um, did you also like there was the daily number and all this stuff and anything like that? Did you ever get wrapped up into betting those or? No, I, I never had the access to that. I didn't know bookmakers. Um, Ellie was a small bookmaker, and he gave me a quarter sheet for my friends. So I had like six friends in there to start. Maybe grew up to ten friends and. He was the only bookmaker I knew. Um, it was around, but it wasn't around where I lived. I, and I, you know, we did about the time I was in high school, we started doing like pools, like two cents a point on, you know, pick 10 or 15 basketball players a night. And we were doing that stuff and runs blind pools for run, pick two teams out of the hat and high runs of the week or low runs of the week. But there wasn't a, I, I didn't know what the numbers were, I think, until I got to college. Gotcha. So, um, so Ellie, you know, you see, you see a quarter sheet. Can you just explain what that is to the listeners? What does a quarter sheet mean? Well, you, you gather, you get your friends to bet with him, to call him up, my friends who bet sports, and he would, you would guarantee they pay you, so I only board and close friends, and he would, and give me 25% of what they lost back. That's a quarter, the 25%. Gotcha. The word quarter comes. And, and, and there was obviously a red figure if he wind up, or was there no red? Yeah, yeah, I don't think he gave me a red. I mean, it was so small and he liked us, so gotcha. I think he just gave us the money. It wasn't a big deal, but eventually it built it up to enough where I decided, you know, is it okay if I take my customers and book them myself from my room when I still was living with my parents? Okay, so so this is so then the quarter sheet you realize that all you're doing is, is Ellie's just making money, even though you're making something. Um, these are your customers. You say I could just do this myself. Um, so that's right, and I, and I have enough of a bankroll to assume some risk, which I didn't have when so I started the quarter sheet. How old are you at this time when you decide I'm going to start booking myself? Um, probably my last. Years of college? No, that was not true. This is like my first years of college because I moved out of my house in my second year of college. Um, so I would have been like 18 or 17 when I started. Gotcha. So it was very small. It wasn't like yeah. But there was one funny story that like set me back, and that's um, I had one friend from the park who was my biggest better, uh, and and one day he called. I always answered the phone right away because most of the phone calls were from me, either gambling phone calls or friend phone calls. I, I was an only child. I had no brothers and sisters. I had my own room by then. And so I would grab the phone, and a friend of mine named Louis Safford made a, a $500 bet on the Jets on a Monday night football game. Now, I only worked till 7, and I would go to the track. And that game started at 8, and at 7.15, they announced that Joe Namath wasn't playing. So this this led to my first claim because Louie called my house. I wasn't answering the phone because I was gone. My mother answered the phone. <laughs> Louie said, give Alan a message. Tell him the jet bet is canceled because Joe name is not playing. Now, my mother didn't know anything about this and didn't know what it meant and didn't know I was the bookmaker. And she gave me that message and that led to a whole dispute with him. Like, you can't cancel a bet with my mother. You have to cancel it with me. <laughs> 
wouldn't have if you spoke to me because you can't find out about injury that undo a bat when the injuries work against you. Yeah, exactly. If he would have bet against the Jets, uh, you know, you'd have to. You can't. You can't call him up and say, "I'm going to want to cancel that bet." Right. Uh, so, cool. wow. So that's. So I did get paid. It took a while, and it took like people listening to the story and being the counselors and saying, you know, like, yeah, you can't do that. You know, like older people like explained to him that that's not kosher. Gotcha. And and in this business. When you're doing something, when there's no regulation or anything like that, you have these, you know, uh, these uh, mediators and the guys, and, and there's always a respected bunch. I've, I've even myself had to go through things like that. And, and and then once, you know, you have one or two or three guys tell you that's not the right thing, you know, usually the best and the honorable people just say, yeah, you're right, and they just listen, even though they might not agree with it at first. Um, right. So it, it was, it was, it wasn't that big a hassle, but, you know, he said, what if the Jets had won, how would you have paid me because I told you, Mom, I canceled with that. And I was like, yeah, I would have paid you because I would have, you know, I, I would have told you right away that no one would say I, you can cancel with that. So you would have had the other side of this argument and you would have got paid. Gotcha. So, um, so okay, so, so, that's the beginning. That's a big, you know, five hundred dollars. We're talking in the early seventies right now. That that's you know, these are some numbers for for a guy that just out of or in college. Um, yeah, he was the biggest batter, but I, I must have had like a ten thousand dollar bankroll by then from winning at the track and winning the quarter sheet and winning. you know everything was plus 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 back then. Not a lot, but plus plus plus. plus. And you see, I was betting the race or something like that. And you were a good saver. That's a, that's a pretty good bankroll. So, what, how how does in the business expand? What ideas did you have to try to bring the business well, to the next level? One of the things I hated was I was there seven days a week forever, and I and I wanted to find a partner, and I wanted to find a partner who wasn't in my circle. And there was this guy named Phil, my age, um, who I used to watch races with on, on television, the replays, and we would both take notes and. We had some friendly banter discussion. He was obviously a smart guy and a nice guy. He lived in Bayside and he had his own crew and we ended up intermingling our crew, my crew with his crew. So we all knew each other, but I didn't know him that well, but I took a shot and I don't know how, I don't remember exactly why I thought this was a good idea to ask a stranger to be my bookmaking partner, but he agreed to it. <laughs> and then we, he brought in about the same amount of customers I had and one, and we had, he had a guy who's bet like three, three hundred dollar if and reverses every day, and I thought this was like a big time gambler, like a super wise guy or something. Um, so that was uh, I just wanted to shoot out, which is probably the first shootout I won in ten weeks or something. It's, it's nice. Maybe I should always be doing podcasts or something. <laughs> So um, I'm waiting for Don Best to flip the score because that that happened to me once, um, but it looks good. So um, so when we merged, <laughs> I, I found I and then in school I was picking up some customers because I was playing poker in college and um, going to track at night. That was my I'd go to classes and leave the poker game, play poker until six, go out to eat on the days that Phil was doing the bookmaking, or I'd go home. Or, or I'd go to my house. I moved in with two other guys and worked the phones until seven. But it always was closed at seven, so I get to the track by eight. I still love the track, even if I was doing the shift. But I found a customer at school, Alan Pincus, who um, had this formula that he thought was a good formula to bet. He would bet one hundred dollars if lose two hundred dollars if lose four hundred dollars. So it was a seven-unit risk to make one unit. And I swear he lost about 35% of us. He just <laughs> found ways to three out of three. Um, he ended up going to jail for embezzling because he was betting with bigger people. Uh, he had moved on, and uh, he didn't pay them, but he had a job, and he and he went to jail for embezzling to pay the bookmakers. He was honorable, but he was crazy. And um, he ended up studying law in jail, became a lawyer. Now he represents horse trainers who have like drug overdose 
suspensions and tries to get that down. He's like a somewhat important lawyer in the racetrack scene now. It's still crazy. I run into him once in a while. <laughs> um, I, run, I mean, it's the same guy. I, I, I haven't changed all that much, and he hasn't changed all that much in 50 years. Jeez, that's unbelievable. Yeah, uh, so so wow so so back then Dinky the bookmakers weren't open all day long they would only open you know just what hours four to seven thirty yeah four to seven thirty at night on, on um, most things so I wouldn't even work baseball because my business got so light I would put some um, my good customers who needed to be taken care of so I get them back in football I don't want to lose them into somebody else's place gotcha. So how about um, I remember you telling me about you know when did the business get grow now that you you were able you couldn't just pick up the phone you didn't want to deal with the phones did you have an office did you get clerks like how did how did that go? Well, I was working for a while out of my house. I, I was doing it solo. It got big enough where I hired my friend's girlfriend to be my first clerk, Sherry, married to a different friend now than that original friend then. I don't, I don't kind of lost contact with her, but she, she was, you know, it was polite and she was polite. She understood. She was smart. She did the numbers. So she was my first clerk. Um, eventually all of these people find reasons to not do it anymore. Like, you know, especially if they hear somebody in my group got busted or something, had to go to jail for a night. That was the only punishment back then. Jail for a night, misdemeanor, $500 a night, no big deal. Um, so that was my first clerk, and I worked out of my house for a while because I was living with two other guys, and I agreed to pay, like, half the rent. They can pay a quarter of the rent. Both of them are still very good, good friends of mine to this day. So um, Bruce and David, if you're listening to the podcast, I'll give you a little shout-out. So eventually uh, I got big enough. And Phil quit. Phil wanted to be a basketball coach. He was very active. We coached a kids' team together, but he was always – much more into it and much more proficient at it than I was. So he wanted to move on. So I found another partner, and we op- we worked out of a friend's house in Kew Gardens. And the business grew. And what happened to me then, which was like a first turning point in my life, is an agent who was friends with Phil, who had a lot of customers, said, I have a lot of customers, you know, just give me a piece of, uh, give me a handle, something that they bet. Give me like two percent, one percent of what they bet total back, which was common in those days. And, and I was kind of ignorant. I didn't know there were people who who bet professionally and won a lot. And, and he gave me every wise guy in the game. He gave me Stevie Z. He gave me the kosher kids. He gave me the computers. Uh, he didn't miss a trick because, he, and he had some guys who were semi squares, you know, and decent customers, but. Those three just ripped me apart uh, and sent me in a, to a very quick broke because I was booking higher than because I wanted to have a bunch of customers who were going to bet 2000 a game. This was great. And my $40,000 bankroll just, just shot in a matter of months. And I borrowed money from a friend and I borrowed money from a loan shark and I just kept on losing. And my business was growing and I was trying kind of booking conservatively, moving my numbers. Remember, there was no Don Best, so I couldn't see the prevalent number, but I would make a lot of calls to see what other bookmakers had. Uh, And I thought I was doing a good job, but apparently I wasn't. And I got into so much debt that I had to borrow from a a gangster. I went to a social club in the Bronx, and uh, I needed another $20,000 to pay my last week's losses. And he brought the money in the shoebox, and it was like heavy. It was like, you know, a big shoebox, like you know, maybe, you know, super sneakers thing. I knew it was heavy money. And I go, this is 20000 It's not in any, there's no hundreds in this box. So I went home. It took me hours to count it, and it was $800 short. And I told the guy who ran the social club, hey, the money that your guy gave, your friend gave me is $800 short. And it's all in twenties, and and he knew I was honest, and I don't know if he went back and told the gangster, you know, that money was short, or he just covered it up for me as a favor because he was a bookmaker that I dealt with who was doing very well at the time because he knew how to book sharps. Mm. 
So eventually I lost again. Um, and I, and I had a friend take over my business where I worked the phones with him. And the same business I was losing constantly started winning constantly. I just had enough of a market to like be able to be on the wise guy's side and to get buybacks. And, and he helped me and I quickly paid off all my loan sharks, got even, got a little bit of money on my own. And then did, you know, I parted ways with the guy who, who took a piece and he was nice enough to let me go back to doing it myself. And from there on, things got better. So, wow, there's a lot to digest here. Let, let, you know, let, let's look. So, you, um, you, you bring, you, you, you're booking wise guys. At this time, you don't know that there's wise guys, sharp players, really, or do you know that they Well, exist? I knew they were smarter. Yeah. Um, but they also, you know, there's always people covering it well, you know, like being friendly when they do it. And I remember somebody called me up and said, I have to go to a bar for the day. Can you give me a line on Maryland? Like, I'm not open yet. It's not 11. It was a Saturday football game and that. You know, I opened at 11, which is 8 o'clock. And that's when, you know, I can get a line. So he said, just give me yesterday's line. I just want to bet it. You know, I, my, my son goes to Maryland. So I gave him yesterday's line. And, of course, there was an injury to the quarterback and the other team. And, you know, I mean, when I got an opening line, it was like five points higher than what I closed the day before. And, you know, I gave him a choice. I said, if you want to get paid, you, you can no longer bet with me. And he, he took the money and no longer bet with me. Um, so I was learning a lot of lessons learned. Sure. Uh, yeah, a lot, there was a lot of hustlers back then. Guys are, you know, shysters. Always yeah, trying to... a lot. yeah, there was more of that. You know, claims I had to learn to tape my bets. And there was always, I bet this team. And I go, it's not on the tape. You know, phantom claims. And you didn't bet it with me. I don't have a ticket for it. It's not on the tape. I'm not paying you. There, there was a lot. Of, a lot of people were, you know, Missing things, but then I bet the Giants. No, you bet the Niners. You just bet the Giants. You got confused with the San Francisco Giants and the New York Giants when they, you know, so the Niners. You bet San Francisco, not the Giants. Um, so there were things like that all the time, little things. But the, my business grew to where it was a profitable business, and, and um, I introduced like having three or four girl clerks in the office because everybody liked to talk to girls. Um, you know, it just was, it was a good office. I wasn't booking the highest in New York, but I think I was booking, you know, correctly for the size of my, my, the number of customers I had. And I started booking basketballs, NBA totals, which was kind of a trip. But I had enough middling players to, when my number like got a little bit off the beaten path, it was off the beaten path because shops were betting it with me, so it wasn't the path by accident. It was off the beaten path because the number, the totals were very weak. Then they were set up uh, in Vegas by Gary Austin, who I think was opening them up so he can bet them. So I learned quickly that my opening, and I opened a little later than everybody, just so I missed the first wave of, of the wise guy money. Uh, so I got in with. Yeah. And then, then there was enough customers to do buybacks. So I was I was writing like six thousand to six thousand, eight thousand to eight thousand every day in that two hour period that I was working. So there was a lot of money to be made as long as the games didn't fall and I ran pretty lucky for a while. Wow, fascinating stuff, Dick. So I also wanted to just bring up because you would be able to call up other offices and you would try to get sharp numbers and stuff. Can you describe that process? Like, how did that work? What other offices, if you know, if you uh, and what did you, you know, what was required? Was there a courtesy play involved? Can you just? Well, I think my philosophy in my office and what I did with other people is I got the first rundown without a courtesy. But if I called for an update, I had to give a $200 or a $300 nickel courtesy. And the people who, my line got to be very sharp and well-known from, you know, as a good, solid line because I was dealing with everybody. Um, and, and so a lot of people were calling me up to use my line for their own benefit elsewhere, especially hockey, because I, I got had a good feel for hockey and my line was usually a little 10 cents different than the, the normal line. So at first people were betting my against me, but then they realized my line was holding up and they started listening to my line to bet other people, but they weren't giving me any plays. So 
So I said, look, I, I know I'm helping you. You know, just give me a courtesy five, $500 play when you get rundowns to see where I moved or what my opinion is. And I got, that was good business too, because I did get a lot of people who were doing that at the time. Beautiful. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I love hearing stuff like this. This is great. So awesome. So um, uh, uh, your business is growing. You got four girl clerks now. You're 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 turning around. You partnered up with a guy, but then you went on your own. You're writing good business. Um, Even when I went on my own, I always took a partner, a small partner, because uh, you know somebody who can sit and write. If I didn't wasn't there, I had devil season tickets and I had ranger season tickets and I still would go to the track a lot um, so I always wanted to get out of the office early so somebody who liked being around the business can, and can understand what I was doing not perfectly but understand what I was doing enough that he can still make a profit with the customers we had so I, yeah, he helped me out so I gave up 25% of my because I still want to have a fun life, and I wanted to get into the city in time to make the hockey games. So, how, with respect to charting, um, what did you? How did you? You know, what did you use to chart? Every bookmaker I, you know, I've talked to from back in the day, with, before computers, before anything, everybody charted in different ways. How did you chart? And did you know any other bookmakers that charted in a different crazy way? Um. I charted on a big, you know, legal pad. I still do a lot of things on a big legal pad, including taking notes that I wanted to uh, to use on this podcast. Um, so, I, uh, you know, everybody had a rundown sheet. They would line set up, you know, mimeograph rundown sheets every day. I'm thinking of college basketball when it was, that was the peak of craziness. We had four phones, four clerks call waiting. And somebody, and another girl came in, my friend's wife, and she wanted a job. So I thought, okay, she can spell some of the other clerks. And she came in, and at 4 o'clock, I put the phones on the hook uh, to start to 4 to 7. And she watched that. She realized that no one ever got off the phone. There was always somebody on hold. While they were talking to and she said, I can't do this. So <laughs> That's the crazy thing I just But I'm paying you like eight hours salary to work three hours. I don't care. You can't do that. <laughs> and I would try. On, I would. I would write out the games every day on a legal pad. And, and I. I was good at listening to all four conversations and knowing which person was dealing with a square or a small better and paying attention to the. They always had to repeat their name. Like, oh, Yellow, hi, Yellow, how are you, Yellow? So I would know that Yellow was a bigger customer who was on the phone. And if it was a little customer like um, Sam the Butcher, I didn't have to pay attention to that call. Wow. Fascinating. I didn't want to and a lot of times, you know, Yellow was on the phone, Black was on the phone, and they wanted the same game. So, you know, I would point to the one that got it, and then i have the other guy say, okay, tell, tell Black the line went to five, somebody beat him in. So they understood because that was... So while the clerks were taking bets, and when you would give them line updates, they would update their sheet with a line, or did you have a big board that you would update it on a whiteboard, or they would have their their sheet to update everybody, it? Everybody had their own sheet. And they would have to take updates between calls? Yeah, they would take updates. They would have to listen to me while they were on the phone and make game change the game. Sometimes they would be in the middle of a rundown, and they would pass the game that I don't oh, Get bet you know the giant the uh, Knicks are now total is two oh eight and a half, and they had run down past that game, but the guy didn't stop them, and then they said, "Oh, we're making the Knicks two oh eight and a half now," and so I wanted to bet at two oh seven and a half, and you know I said you have to you have to bet it when you hear it, you can't bet it after I change the number and take advantage of my. Unbelievable! Of course, the little, little betters could do whatever. I have a great story about a little better that I just thought of. I div- in, in the NBA, there were teasers, and you can have, I think it was eight points on a game, and you have to lay six to five and ties lose. So one of my customers who liked to do any, every different kind of bet possible that was offered took the teaser and used all 24 points on one game. So now he had three games, two at the original line and didn't get any points for it, had to win those games both and was laying six to five instead of betting individually. <laughs> it was probably 
that I ever wrote. And like when I saw the ticket the next day, when I graded the ticket at night, so what he did, I said, oh, his name was O because he was, was like zero chance of winning O. Um, and, and I Look what you just did here. You, you left the Sixer line and the Bucks signs the same. And you risk six to five ties lose by taking 24 points with the Lakers. That's probably not the best budget. <laughs> That's and amazing. He, he was a math teacher. <laughs> That's great. And, you, and, and now, do you gave them their nickname. So black and yellow, you give them their nickname. Oh. Well, yeah. I give them the, the code, you know. If they were foreign, an agent put it in, it will be black for Mr. T or something. Gotcha, yeah. Beautiful. I remember you telling me uh, a story about um, about uh, uh, a paper plate or something. Can you just elaborate on that? Oh, yeah. One, one day I had a, I, I actually had a date, and we were going to see a show. I'm kind of trying to think of the show. I think it was Liza Minnelli and something, and I never go to shows, but uh, I, I like this girl and I wanted to take her to a show. So I had a, another bookmaker, somebody who's still a bookmaker or a mover and shaker in Costa Rica, who was played, it was also in that movie that I was in with uh, Lay the Favorite. I guess we'll talk about that later. But anyway, um, I said, please, uh, <laughs> I, say, I said, please come in and write my business. And, you know, he wasn't doing that much then, I, I, but he was a, a, he had like big customers. But he would, on the, on, like, I left a pad for him to write the plays, but he used his own method. He brought in a paper plate, like, not even a big paper plate, and wrote the best around in circular fashion. So when I got, and, and the smallest handwriting you could possibly have, when I came home from my date at, like, midnight, I, I, I saw there's nothing on the legal pad, and I go, I don't think he came in. But then I saw this paper plate, and, and I go, oh, my God. And I looked at the best. I couldn't read anything that he wrote. <laughs> I had to drive to Bayside and have him interpret the best that he wrote. That's I, 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 that's one of the best stories. I love that. And this is a mutual friend of ours, uh, you know, well known. Who became one of the biggest bookmakers in, in the in the world for yeah. a little while. Yeah. And um, and one of the one of the most honorable and nicest guys in the whole business. Um, yeah. But, he was, Honorable, but he wasn't in control of his, his betting or his booking habits, and he actually owed me a large chunk of money for 16 years and called me up, and he said, how much do I owe you? And I said, I think you owe me 15000 I go, I can't believe he might be paying me. My dog is barking. I think she doesn't like this story. But he owed me money. He called me up. I go, I'm getting this money. I can't believe it. I'll believe it when I see it. And I, I know I was had a trip scheduled like the next month in New York and he drove to my hotel and he gave me the money but he also asked me the funniest question he said how much do I owe you I said 15,000 he said yeah I think that's right do you know how much I owe Fernando <laughs> and I'm thinking what I know how much you owe Fernando from 16 years ago I don't think I have that back in my head I don't think I ever do but uh, if I did I long forgot about it and, and you know he just he knew Fernando was one of the most honorable guys too, so he also called him and played him. Let's talk so, about Fernando real quick, if you don't mind. I'll talk about. Fernando. Yeah, can you just can you tell me, you know, Fernando, you know, passed on about a decade ago, but uh, can you just just tell us about, you know, about Fernando? Yeah, certainly Fernando was the most liked bookmaker in the history of bookmaking. He would give anybody what they wanted. He would let them book high. Um, he once told somebody to go out, look out the window because the sky's the limit when they asked him how much they could bet. He would take horse bets from known race fixers. Yeah, he was, um, not only was he one of my best friends, he was the best person I've ever met in this business. He was the nicest person, let people take advantage of him, booked high, was pretty fearless, always paid with a smile, always paid on time. Um, this is a good guy. We played basketball together. We went to the track together. Uh, he had uh, some unfortunate luck that when he was working for somebody with somebody that, uh, he became the fall guy, went to jail for a little while and got deported, um, then passed away in Costa Rica. But there was nobody more likable than him. 
Yeah, it's Fernando is um is even when Fernando you know was working at Hollywood you know offshore in Costa Rica, um he was one of the first guys to ever like to realize the quarter NBA quarter line you know you don't just divide the, the full game total by four and just deal every quarter more or less the same. So he he was a pioneer in in, in stuff like that and uh, and he, he's like you said one of the nicest guys in the business and he you know he you know I I was I, not as close as you. I'm not a childhood friend, but I got pretty close to him. We um and um and you know we were both at his. I don't, I don't know if you, you were able to make it to the funeral or not, but there was a lot of uh, old old guy old. Yeah, I think were you there? Thinking I'm not trying to remember, but I wasn't there. I just come back to Vegas like three days before, and uh, didn't go back. I regret not going back, but I was in New York for a while, and I I had to go back for something in Vegas and. Yeah, I should have just flown well, in and out for the day, and then I kind of feel bad. We lost a little bit of contact when he got to Trump. Gotcha. Yeah, he um he was he was one of the nicest guys, and and it's uh, you know it's sad. But um okay, so so let's so now you're we're mid 80s. You're at the peak of your career. Uh, any trouble with law enforcement? Anything happened? Uh, you know, any? Pinch? Yeah, I I got busted three times, and and they accelerated it in how the effect of it. The first time was, um, ooh, I have to think about the years. I was probably like 30, um, maybe 81. I think um, the Eagles were playing, the Eagles were playing the Bengals in the Super Bowl. And when I got out, I mean, I got out, I got busted two days before the Super Bowl. So I, there was a big costly bust because um, I worked the morning at the Super Bowl, but a lot of people didn't know where I was because they knew I wasn't there Friday or Saturday. They just assumed I got busted. I went right back to the same place to work because I knew I wouldn't get busted again. Uh, and that was a funny bust because my friend told me, you know, we're going to, he was giving away the dog to another family. So he said, expect that during the session, somebody's going to come and take Fluffy. So somebody rang the bell and they just buzzed them back. Normally I would answer, you know, ask who it was, but I, I, we didn't, no one ever rang that bell. So I just assumed it was the person for the dog. So when I got to the door, I went with the dog and answered the door, <laughs> and it was the yeah, it was the cops. Gotcha. And I was thinking, they just rang the bell. This is not a good way to the downstairs bell is not a good way to bust the book. <laughs> uh, oh my! I, I don't think they've ever busted. I was never busted before. I don't think they busted anybody before because you don't ring the downstairs bell. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, and and what was the last? When did so, you wind, when did you wind up? After, which pinch made you retire? Want to retire from bookmaking? The third one, which was a big pinch, that busted um, a couple of people in Queens and a couple of people in Jersey, and it was uh, it was it was a federal bus from Detroit and. They took us in, you know, separate rooms. They told me they know who I worked for. And they said, I don't work for anybody. And you go, oh, you're lying. And I go, I'm not lying. Uh, you know, I never denied what I'm doing here. He also answered the phones, which cost me like 20000 you know, trying to take bets from and people just claimed they bet. And, you know, it was, if they owed me money, they claimed they wanted it back. I bet it was the cops who dealt lines that were like 20 points off. You know? <laughs> So that was, that's when I learned which customers I no longer wanted. But um, so they just interrogated us, didn't learn anything because there was really nothing to learn except we were makers. And um, eventually they, you know, they let us go. And I go, they're letting us go. This is not good. You know, this is going to come back and haunt me somewhere else. They're not supposed to be letting us go. So um, we, I went home. And I decided that's it. And I, you know, I said, I don't know what's going to come of this, but it's got, something's got to be, something's got to come. And I learned it was a customer, Detroit, who was a book, bookmaking for, you know, shop wise guys, you know, maybe modern guys, who I didn't know, I never met. He came in through an agent. So that bus made me stop. And eventually, four years later, I got indicted with racketeering charges. Uh, I don't know why it took them four years. I imagine they were waited, wanted other people in the case to get more trouble so they can hit them with, you know, more more of a sentence. But I, I had to take a felony. I had to do 11 months 
in a work release program. And, and I had moved to San Diego because I wanted to get out of New York because I would have started bookmaking again, and that could have been really, really bad for me. I moved to San Diego. I moved in with a friend of mine who was a research biologist, um, and I, I stayed away from gambling except for going to racetrack. I, I went to Del Mar almost every day for simulcast and um, live racing in the summer. And I wasn't doing all that well. Racing was hard, but I was also going back and forth talking to lawyers and how this was going to work. And they reduced the RICO charges, which shouldn't have been there in the first place. But I had to take a felony. And when I went to sentencing, I thought I was going to get probation, but I wasn't sure. The lawyer was pretty sure I was going to get probation. And I didn't. And I, I got a serious sentence. Boy, my dog never barks like this. She must, she must not like you, Spank. <laughs> it's okay. It's only Spank. Uh, anyway, so so this uh, is what what year what year are we in right now? When when, when you when you get these? Okay. I got busted in '87. I got sentenced in '92. I got indicted in '91. Sentenced in '92. I started serving in '93, uh, and I was working at a friend's deli. Um. Uh, so I was out every day but one. I, I went to, I got an extra hour here and there because they didn't care. I had to give them part of my salary. I got an extra hour for going to GA. I went to GA at night on Monday. I would get an extra time for it. Chef, Fort, Chef Forty was in my GA group. He was a famous director for ABC Sports Monday Night Football. And he told me, I remember him telling me, if I can't win Betty, no one could win. <laughs> thinking, no, you know, this is like this is a niche thing. Like, I, I can't direct because I know football. I can't direct a football game, and and you can direct a football game, but you don't know how to gamble. And I think he ended up embezzling too, and that's why he was going to GA to reduce his sentence. He's a nice guy, but that, I would go there, and then I would go back home to my house, which was near the GA place and watched the first hour of Monday Night Raw, and then I went to jail to sleep in. They let me out because there was no exercise there. They let me out on Sundays two hours early so I can play softball with my friends. It was it was a very lax place, but it was also kind of disgusting quarters. Um, bathrooms, there was no door to the bathroom stalls. It, it was very uncomfortable for me. All right, so th that sentence ends now, and then uh, uh, you're I done. Came, I came back. I did a year of probation. My probation officer came to my house. We talked about horse racing. He liked gambling. He saw I wasn't dangerous. He just said, do some paperwork once a month. Um, I did travel to Vegas. I wasn't supposed to a couple of times, but that's that was it. Um, I had missed two good years of gambling. You know, if I was... In Vegas in 93, instead of in 95, I would have made an awful lot of money because it was a, a year where almost every move was winning. The, the computer group, Billy Walters, had his best year ever, I think, at least with percentages of one. And I, and I would have been moving for him. Eventually, I got work in Vegas when I moved out there where I got a sheet for moving money and having runners casinos. Um, but those people didn't win, so I didn't earn. It was just like working. And I was, you know, betting on my own you know, stuff that was moving in my own hockey opinion. So I was making some money, but it wasn't really what I thought it was going to be. When did you meet your wife at the time? Um, I met my wife before, maybe the year before I went to the halfway house, the work release program, uh, at the track. She was a teller at the track formerly married to a, a jockey, Don Pierce, and uh, they were divorcing, and she needed a place to stay when I was going to the halfway house, so I gave, I, I let her stay in my room. We were just totally friends, but by the time we were, you know, by the time April came around, I went in January 1st, and by the time April came around, we started, you know, having a relationship. Until then, I was friends. I was dating one of her rivals at the track, uh, and I also had a girlfriend in New York City who would come out once in a while. And for sure, that year that I was in work release, I had the most sex I've ever had. 
<laughs> there was enough time to fit that in, and I found out like women like criminals or something. <laughs> I think they were attracted to them that I had to go back to jail that night. So, so I, it was pretty interesting, and I ended up living with Gail for um, another five years, and then we got married for another sixteen years, and now we're divorced, but we're still best of friends. Beautiful. So you you moved to Vegas in '95. Is there ever a, and you're betting that you're now you're just don't you're earning. You're not booking anymore. You're just betting professionally. How was it like betting in the mid '90s to late '90s in Vegas? There was still a lot of outs that you that were soft. There was an out in Chicago that gave you the lines on a tape recorder and guaranteed them for two hours. So you can bet on, on the tape recorder, um, and the lines came up at twelve. And you can bet till two on those lines. And so I, I was betting every single move that ever moved. And, you know, waiting as close to two as possible because I saw more movements before I would make a bunch of bets. Other people would let me buy a half a point on games. Uh, and they didn't have the moves. So I was getting like two points the best of the pair. And, you know, I was, a, I'm always been, I still am a closing line value guy like yourself. You want to make bets at good numbers. That's the name of the game for me as well. But, you know, people would say, I'd rather have the winner than, than make a bet at a good number. And that's a, like a ridiculous statement. Like, you know, okay, go have the winner. You know, since you know every winner, you should, uh, you know, don't care about the number. But some, sometimes, as you might know, the numbers fall. And, and that makes a difference between being a winner or a loser. Incredible. Uh, 100% agree. That, that's just, that's, it's, it's, it's the only way to go with closing line value. So, do you ever uh, get ever get tempted to ever go back into bookmaking? Like now, Costa Rica, the businesses of Costa Rica are starting to blossom now. People are going offshore, Jamaica, Antigua, Costa Rica, uh, uh, Panama, etc. Did you ever think about doing anything that like that? Or yeah, in about two thousand, um, I went to Costa Rica twice. My friend Alex was booking them. He rest in peace. He was a, a super nice guy, and he, I was like a mentor to him for a while. But then he surpassed me in bookmaking. He was very talented in getting sheets and Alex, making good deals. Alex, play the mint. Alex, we're talking. Play the mint. PT on my sheet. Yeah. Um, well, we we he I knew him when he was just a clerk in an office, uh, and and you know we just. We became very good friends. That that death is still very difficult on me. Um, he died in Costa Rica of a, like a heart attack just while he was at the office, not even working, but just hanging out watching his workers work, and just collapsed and died. I talked to him the week before he died. I had an argument with him, believe it or not, the week before he died. But probably every, you know, half of the time I talked to the guy, we were having arguments. But he was very, very sharp, do his thing, and um, and he was passionate. You know what I mean? If he, uh, if, if if he, you know, he was a passionate guy. But his line was very well respected in the business. But that's just a side thing. Go ahead. So you're, you're you go see Alex in Costa Rica, and go see Alex in Costa Rica, and then I I met with. Uh a few people and, and saw how their office was for run. One was Richard um, when he worked at WIT. Do you remember WIT? I do. Whatever WIT, W-I-T, whatever it takes. <laughs> whatever it takes. And he was very nice to me and showed me around. The girl, Julie, who used to write, used to write at um, the boardwalk, which was a hot spot for horse betting in Vegas because they gave out a re- rebate, ended up working at WIT, and she was there at the time. Um, I also met Len from Cascade. I met um, R- uh, Roy from Rio. Roy took me around. He was he had his head clerk Laurie used to work for me, so I was familiar with um, the person who was running his office at the time. Another person who passed away, and I miss terribly. She was a good soul. Um, and uh, and Ron from Chris. Um, I went in with your friend Tugboat. And he gave us a tour, and we discussed life. And I always liked him. He was a very stand-up guy. He still is a very stand-up. So the, 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 these are all legends you just mentioned. That's great stuff. So the lure of Costa Rica doesn't doesn't you say, "Nah, I can't live here. 
I don't want to. I don't want to move down to Costa Rica and live there. So you, and 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 you know, be a bookmaker. You decide to just go back to Vegas. Um. Yeah. I. They, it was booking twelve hours a day and then going to dinner and talking about bookmaking and customers and games and. I always try to diversify my life. I like music. I go to concerts. As you know, I go to wrestling. We'll be at WrestleMania in a couple of months. Um, uh, you know, I like to play sports. Um, most people are golfing there. I never really liked golf. I, I wouldn't have played basketball. I would have missed playing ball. basketball. was like three or four days a week for me at that time. It's lasted a long time. I, I missed that. I think I... Uh, gained like 25 pounds since I stopped playing basketball. But um, I just did that, that, you know, and my mom was, I'm an only child, my mom was still alive. It would have hurt her if I left the country, even though I lived in Vegas and she lived in Queens. But I think it would have really disappointed her. So there was like, there was no good reason except I'll probably make more money if I go there. Um, It wasn't the lifestyle for me. A lot of people were, you know, a lot of 40-year-olds were with 18-year-old girls that didn't appeal to me. Different lifestyle, um, and I didn't like it. Gotcha. Okay, so you're back in Vegas now, and this is kind of, you know, very few people, Dinky, have have uh, have the uh, a movie made about them, or, or you know, not just made about them, but have you know, you're a, uh, have a you know Bruce Willis play you in a movie. If anybody doesn't know, Dinky had Bruce Willis play him in a movie called Lay the Favorite a book written by Beth Raymer. So, you know, this is kind of where the movie starts off, where uh, Beth is working for you and stuff. Why don't you take us into that? And now we're the early 2000s um, and, and how that went about. My massage therapist knew that I needed a clerk. We, we had mentioned it while I was getting a massage, and she recommended this girl who was working in a Thai restaurant who came to Vegas from Florida with a boyfriend and then they broke up. So I did an interview with her in my office and she was smart. I wasn't quite sure she was 21, but she was 24. She acted like she was, she giggled and talked like she was 16, but I can tell she was smart, but different. And that's like, I'm attracted to people who are smart and different. And like you, you know, we live an alternative lifestyle. I think we're attracted to people who are smart, um, but not living the nine-to-five work style. So she, um, I was going to a concert the next day by myself, and she actually came along, so we became instant friends. And she's, yeah, uh, she was a good worker, but she was crazy uh, in a nice way. Crazy, smart, nice. Still is, we're still friends. Um, And when she was done with me, she had met a, a guy, and I, and I was having a little friction in my marriage because I was so close to another girl, even though she was more like my little sister. My wife still didn't appreciate that I was hanging out with my little sister a lot. And there was nothing between that. Um, and then my wife ended up realizing that eventually, but it was after Beth left, and now you know my wife and Beth, my ex-wife and Beth, are still friends. So if it, that worked its way out the way I hoped it would. It just took too long. So when she left me, I gave her to um, our friend in New York, who was played by Vince Vaughn, um, and I told her, you know, this is a, a, the nicest guy in the world, but he's a little wild, and. She called me back like a week later and said, I I see, I, I haven't really started for him, but we hang out. I interpret his dreams. She was hired as his dream interpreter. And uh, <laughs> he's the nicest guy in the world, but why did you say she, he was wild? I said, did you see him work yet? He said, no, I'm going to start Monday on that. So on Tuesday, she called me and said, he's the wildest guy I've ever met. <laughs> He thought I was charting games for him, and he thought he was balanced on a game. He was betting he had like 70000 on the game. <laughs> it was crazy. So I told you he was the nicest guy but wild. And she said, yeah, he's exactly that. And then he ended up moving to Curacao, and she went with him to like be one of her, his main people down there. Beautiful. That's great stuff, Dink. So uh, in in... 
in 2000, and, and you not only have Beth, you have a lot of runners in the casinos. You're betting in casinos and stuff and everything. It was it was fading by 2000 because it was just so hard. Mm. Uh, some of the like the Stardust Lottery were just about done. The the line started originating in, in Costa Rica. People were picking up the same line. The sports books weren't giving it away anymore. There was an Excalibur lottery that gave you a couple of points on every game at eight o'clock, and you know there's there was a, the Sahara had a Monday night thing where you could take a half a point on any football game, so everybody was the game was three, they would take three and a half, and their friend would lay two and a half, so they decided we just won't make games three. So if the real line was three, they were using four, so instead of you know, you can take four and a half and lay three somewhere else. They were avoiding the three by giving you a point and a half the best of them. Gotcha. Not that. That lasted about three months. And, and I got in maybe on the second month. I, somebody told me, gave me a heads up. But it was when I got there that, you know, a lot of people knew who I was and they swore me the secrecy. You can't tell anybody about this. You can't tell anybody about it. And you can't bring other people to bet with you. You, you know, you have to be, you know, they had all these rules. It was very clandestine. It was very secretive. And it was one, and Circus Circus did something like that on Fridays. And, and the Hilton was doing so five on Thursdays. So there were still bargains around, but they closed up quickly because the, the proficiency of more people who are very, very smart getting into the gambling business, people like yourself who can model and code. And I, I, I didn't even know what coding was for about five years after I heard the word. I think you might have been the first one to tell me because I knew whatever it was, I couldn't do it. And I knew whatever other people could do it, and they were making you know much better decisions in, in bets than I can. I, I always was the old school, feel it out, make a line, see where your line differs from other people, see if the line moves the way you think it will move, and take the best of it. And hope, hope the gambling gods are kind. That was my strategy, and it still is. Uh, now people know, you know, you, and I still look at analytics. People think I don't, but I do. I just don't have a model where I use my analytics and know and quantify everything. I kind of use my own work and look at analytics and quantify things in my head. I can only do it in hockey and maybe baseball totals. Uh, everything else, I'm way behind. So, but you still were able to support yourself and and make a great living. I can still make a living and, and, and put money away most years. Um, my goal now is kind of like never have a losing year. Um, live a nice life. I'm 66. So I don't know how long I'm going to live. I still go to concerts where you have to stand. Um, I'm a friend of a band from Wales called The Joy Formidable. You know, I will go and see them play on a whim, and, and you know, in a place in the United States I haven't been to. So I, you know, I have a goal like that. Everybody should have a band. I think everybody should have a band that they like because music is one of the few things in life that's a total win-win. There's nothing negative about liking music. Great points. Great points. So, so Dickie, uh, you know, the podcast is "Be Better Betters." Can you give any advice? to somebody that wants to just come up in the business that wants to, uh, you know, turn their losing into winning or maybe even try to become a professional, what advice can you give? Uh, no matter how much you think you know, there's so much more to learn. Read everything you can. Um, our friend Matt wrote a book called The Logic of Sports Betting. It'll open your eyes to how much more there is to know. It might take you from being a small loser to a break-even player or being a, from a break-even player to a small winning player, but there's a lot of nuggets in that book, but you realize how little you know, the way you look at the best, the little things to do and not to do. Um, if you can find yourself somebody who's a pro and a winning pro, you know, learn as much as you can from them. It's, it's a lot of learning process. You're going to probably start out losing, so bet very small, and as when you start winning, increase your bankroll. Don't chase. Don't think that you're due to win or sooner or later things will turn. They don't have to turn. Each day is a new day. Each bet is a new bet. Wow. Well, that's a perfect way to end, Dickie. Does it get better than that, brother? I uh, I love Thanks. this time. I, I want to mention one thing. Yeah, go ahead. Um, because I always mention this one thing. 
I fundraise for a horse rescue. I want to give back to a sport that I liked and protect the horses. Uh, it's called SoCal Thoroughbred Rescue. SCTB rescue.com dot org sctb rescue.org if you care about horses and can donate a little and you learned something on this podcast or you enjoyed it please make a small donation i really appreciate it dickie thank you so much for coming on this um you have taught me a lot when i was going through my whole case um, you were always there for me when I would talk to you about what I should do next. You know, I was on the verge of going to trial because uh, I wasn't a bookmaker, but um, but you kind of talked me down and you kind of just said, "What the hell is a felony going to do? I have a felony for all these years and it hasn't affected my life in any way." Uh, so it kind of uh, kind of you know grounded me. And 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 whenever I had I needed somebody to talk to a friend, you were always there for me, not just in this business but outside of this business. And for that, I'm forever grateful, my friend. It's it's such a pleasure. And I've learned, I've learned so much from you about you know what it takes to be a successful better and how much work you put in and how good a crew you have and how they function really like an unbelievably good team. And I've been to your office. I saw the camaraderie. It's just you're just a very nice person in a business where not everybody is very nice. Thank you, brother. That means a lot. I appreciate you saying that. All right, that wraps it up for Be Better Betters this week. Thank you so much for Dickie to come on, and thank you for the time. Until next time.